of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country, as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines, vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. says I, takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die, and standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your hill it's there you find your hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never 
You're back with Free Talk with Nolene. They are currently in South Africa to launch their first international Peapod Foundation, which will aid disadvantaged children nationwide. This is a special uh, 
thing for us coming to South Africa, performing in front of 40,000 people, a free concert for people in poverty-stricken areas. You know, it's very important to me to be able to give back to what was given to me. There's kids out there that have no way out of the situation. Maybe they need to be surrounded by people that made their dreams come true. There's no way, so people just be a woman, be a man, realize that you can change the world by changing yourself, and understand that we all just the same, so when I count of three, let's change. of all these negative conditions, divided by beliefs, differences in religion, why do we keep missing the point on our mission, why are we killing each other, what's the reason, God made us all equal in his vision, I wish that I could make music as a religion, then we could harmonize together in this mission, listen, I know it's really hard to make changes, but two of us can help and rearrange this cuss, utilize our power and our voices, together we will unite and make the right choice and fight for education, save the next generation, come together as one, I don't understand why it's never been done so let's change on a kind of one it takes one just one and then one falls the other one and then the other falls another one next thing you know you got a billion people doing some wonderful things people doing some powerful things let's change it to some powerful things unity could be a wonderful thing one for all one for all 
And good morning to you all, and a happy Labor Day weekend to you. <coughs> this is the B, and we're talking labor and love. <coughs> a show that we do every Saturday morning from 10 to 12 a.m. on mutinyradio.fm. Mutinyradio.fm. <coughs> Here at 2781 21st Street, where we're really strapped for money. We really need you to go on our Facebook page, mutinyradio.fm, and donate to our station. We've got enough money till the 1st of October, according to our station manager here, the tireless. M. Benjamin. We started out today with Joe Hill, a classic song of the labor movement by the great Paul Robeson. <coughs> written by Ralph Chaplin. And then we... Uh <coughs> Pardon me. We had uh, Phoebe Snow singing a favorite of mine, It Takes a Lot to Laugh, Takes a Train to Cry. And then we had the uh, Black Eyed Peas, South African band singing their song called Union. Well, welcome, everybody. And let's read our credos, the things that keep us Sane, I guess, in an insane time. Credo, number one, pity the nation. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silent, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation, oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode freedoms to be washed away. My country tears for thee, sweet land of liberty. This is a reminder when uh, President Trump, for example, brags about the stock market and how high it is. Mr. Robert Reich answers back with, your reminder that the richest 1% own half the stock market and the richest 10% own almost all of it. So when Trump brags about the stock market, he's not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. Thank you, Robert Reich. 
10%. Richest 10% own almost all of the stock market. <clears throat> Fun fact number three. I think Labor Day should be called Labor Memorial Day because organized labor has never been weak in our country than it is today. Most of us don't even know that the Labor Day holiday that's now is supposed to commemorate labor unions and what they've won for Americans. But what's one thing? Here's Utah Phillips. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. They were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for. They were bled for. They were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no fruit. Amen. Labor history. Here's another. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, then you know it's a war on women. So, yeah, <clears throat> a woman can get raped and then wanting to have the, the fetus aborted in some states penalizes her worse than the man who raped her. So go figure. Okay? Can I tell you a secret? Jesse Member of DSALA. I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals, bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they all, they're all poor is because they don't get paid enough. Vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Please use your brains the existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase their wages. You're poor and you're broke because you're not getting paid enough. The people who are paying your wages are holding out on you. Oh, you're just not that into politics. 
Well, let's see. Your boss is... Your boss is into politics. Your landlord's into politics. Your insurance company is definitely into politics. And every day, they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. It's time to get into politics. Just cutting through all the BS. Occam's razor. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. What does the world look like from the point of view of women? Here's one woman speaking up. So let me get see if I've got this right. I'm not allowed to get an abortion because I didn't realize I was pregnant till six weeks. I'm not allowed to get my tubes tied to prevent any more pregnancies because once again it has to be someone else's rules. A bunch of men got together in a room and voted on what women could do with their bodies. Cut funding to Planned Parenthood so now I can no longer get the cheap birth control to prevent a pregnancy. Not all insurance covers birth control. Just recently, certain religious considerations were deemed important enough to deny a woman the right to an abortion. Cut funding to CHIP, WIC, and food assistance, making it harder for single mothers to take care of the child they were forced to have. I think I got it. Government can't tell you what guns you can own because that's violating your rights as an American citizen. But it's totally okay for them to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body. My rights as a woman just aren't that important. And the last one, huh? What's our last one? Ah, that's our Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Labor and Love Radio is where we tell you how it is. We tell you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. The central, the central contradiction at the very center of capitalism is that you are always underpaid when you're a wage worker. Because your boss is keeping a percentage, a part of what you earn, of the value of your work when they go out into the marketplace, they keep that. And that's called profit. And under capitalism, boards of directors take that money and do with it as they please. They pay taxes, they pay overhead, and then they do what they please. 
if you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table that is, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of the movement. All right. Labor and Love Radio today. Coming at you. All right. Let's get into some music here. Here's Paul Robeson again singing Song of the Volga Boat. <laughs> Working class people. Once more, boys, and yet once more, hey, oh, I see there a low ring, a right new coffin. I 
see they're letting down a rotten new coffin way over in that union burying ground. And the new dirt's a falling on a rotten new coffin. The new dirt's a falling on a rotten new coffin way over in that union burying ground. Oh, tell me who's that they're letting down, down. Tell me who's that they're letting down, down. Way over in that union burying ground. Another union organizer. Another union organizer. Way over in that union burying ground. A union brother and a union sister. A union brother and a union sister. Way over in that union burying ground. A union father and a union mother and a union father and a union mother way over in that union burying ground well i'm gonna sleep in a union coffin i'm gonna sleep in a union coffin way A thousand new ones, ever new grave brains, thousand members, way over in that union burying ground. Ever new grave brings a thousand brothers, and ever new grave brings a thousand sisters to the union in that union burying ground. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow another ton or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul, but there ain't gonna be... No fire in the hole. Well, Daddy died a mile. 
A bed that's cold will kill me for my working days is through In a hole that's dark and dirty An early grave confined A plan to make a union for the ones I leave behind Stand up, boys, let the bosses know Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low Dickens from West Virginia. Old minor song, Fire in the Hole. There ain't going to be no fire in the hole. Fire in the hole when the mine catches fire and the uh, miners are trapped. For that, the Union Burial Ground by Woody Guthrie. Guthrie claiming, of course, that he's going to die in a Union coffin. And before that, the great Paul Robeson with a song of the Volga Boatman. I can remember as a kid singing this song in school. What's that about? I mean, what? Got to remember who that teacher was, huh? <laughs> okay, we'll be back with some more modern labor songs, protest songs. But right now, I want to turn to Mr. Block. Mr. Block um, is on the nickthorkelson.com. Thorkelson is a uh, labor cartoonist and graphic artist. Mr. Block was a cartoon character who appeared regularly in the IWW periodicals. And uh, Joe Hill wrote a song about Mr. Block. Money kings in Cuba blew up the gunshot boat Maine, but Black got awful. But Block got awful angry and blamed it all on Spain. Mr. Block is kind of uh, the uh, American conservative. Uh, Someone who doesn't question what's going on with him. Bebo was a German immigrant. And uh, here's some of Mr. Block's stories. Some of Mr. Block's illusions. It's called capitalist justice. Mr. Block has a... has a... Uh, crutch. He's been hurt on the job. And a lawyer in a black suit comes and says, $100 damages at my fees, 95 That leaves you $5, Mr. Block. Land of opportunity? We'll see. 
high-wage stories are published to swamp the labor market of the West in order to reduce wages. And this IWW organizer is in the, the boxcar, but Mr. Block has a little flag on his blockhead, and he says, I am a patriot, and I object to anarchism in this Upward mobility, workers are going, nice day. And Mr. Block now has got uh, his cl good clothes on, nice suit. He says, I hope these people understand that I don't belong to their class anymore. The workers are walking by. And his wife says, trash. Uplift. Help him. After breakfast, sing and smile. After supper, walk a while. And the woman with the empty shopping bag says, we can't eat this. How about craft unionism and social democracy? I am going to join so I can scab without getting my block busted. Working men, vote the socialist ticket and better your condition. It's easy. Just drop a slip of paper. This is illustrating Reby's contempt for the IWW's rivals in the union and other left Moments as if it was only a matter of voting. And that's true even today. A lot of people still think that we can vote socialism or uh, worker rights or labor rights, union rights into the law. And once passed, they'll be there. Well, no, the struggle is always going on. Those people, as we read, are, they're into politics. They want to keep your rates high, your rent high, and your dues, your pay low. Factionalism. In one sequence, Reba all had Mr. Block actually join the IWW, but as a police spy charged with sowing dissension. Bring it in. I'll print it. And all the different parts of the IWW. Anarchy and patent medicine. IWW principles. Union of the IWW. War fever. This is how the United States, uh, this is how governments historically get people, to, working people to fight. The grand illusion that most inhibited Mr. Bloch's class consciousness. There's a Russian going, forgotten Tsar. And there's another English supremacy, another Vive la France. The Germans going, Hoch der Kaiser. In the fall of 1914, a flurry of drawings by Reba, Reba bitterly attacked the bloodlust, profiteering, hypocrisy, and cruelty of the world. 
or fever and accompanying anti-radical hysteria might have temporarily foreclosed Reba's dream of a broad-based revolutionary union. The rebel cartoonists of today, Reba's heirs, can still profit from Reba's example of fearless, subversive humor. Hey, somebody's telling me, you can't draw a dumb hick with a flag stuck in his lapel. It's disrespectful to dumb hicks. It's too provocative. And Reba's saying, isn't provocative what we're after? So, meet Mr. Block. Let's hear from one of our... Uh, of our uh, overlooked heroes. First, let's listen to Francesca Fiorentino. Is there such break. thing as a good billionaire? After all, they've given us so much. Is there such a thing as a good billionaire? People like Bezos and uh, all the other gang of new billionaires could be saving the country now just by dipping a little into their personal fortunes. Here's what Francesca has to say. Is there such thing as a good billionaire? After all, they've given us so much, like cancer research and the unicorn frappuccino, which is probably cancerous, so that one's a wash. But do those good deeds make up for their incredible amount of wealth? I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode of Newsbroke, we're looking at myths about so-called benevolent billionaires. It's a hard time to be a billionaire. As if maintenance costs on your Gulfstream weren't high enough, the failures of capitalism mean your disproportionately large slice of the pie has you looking like a snack. Look at Bezos. He's such a snack. We should eat him. No, really. We should eat the rich. There are more billionaires now than there have ever been in history. And together, they're worth $8.7 trillion. Some people are so enamored with the idea of extreme wealth, they talk about billionaires like they're talking about the Backstreet Boys. Who's your favorite billionaire in America? Bernie hesitated like he was asked, what's your favorite cancer? Uh, prostate. But the tide of popular opinion is turning against billionaires, as extreme inequality is putting a spotlight on extreme hoarding. Some see such exorbitant wealth as a flaw in our economic system and think that we should abolish billionaires. And that kind of criticism has got some ultra-rich feeling ultra-fragile. Do you agree that billionaires have too much power in American public life? The, the, the moniker billionaire now has become the, the catchphrase. I would rephrase that and I would say that people of, of means have been able to... Whoa, 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 people of means? Do the rich think that billionaire is their N-word? Only we're allowed to call each other that, and always with a soft R, billionaire. Whether or not billionaires should exist, they do. And some are giving back. So let's look at those not immoral billionaires, the ones who claim to be good. We're told they're self-made, that many believe in paying higher taxes, and that they all give to charity, claims that we're going to dive into. Before we do, let me say there are plenty of unrepentant asshole billionaires completely unconcerned with appearing benevolent. The Koch brother. 
who made their money by ravaging the earth and then helping deny climate change. Hedge fund manager Robert Mercer, who helped fund Trump, Brexit, and Breitbart News. And billionaire Rupert Murdoch, who's the head honcho of Fox News. The top dog, the big cheese, the grand wizard, if you will. Unlike our child heir of a president, the good billionaires are, well, actual billionaires, and are often referred to as being self-made. Bill Gates, self-made man. Warren Buffett, self-made man. Named the youngest self-made billionaire by Forbes magazine. We have a number of self-made. They didn't get it from family. They did it on their own. You're, you're a billionaire or whatever you are, a millionaire or whatever. But it's like, you're self-made. Millionaire or billionaire or whatever? Look at how salty Bloomberg is about that lack of distinction. Release the hounds or whatever. These are smart guys with good ideas. They probably didn't kill anybody to get to the top, and unlike certain so-called self-made billionaires, Zuckerberg's butt is real, if you must know. But take Bill Gates, the billionaireist of the billionaires, who is often commended for being one of the good ones. He didn't exactly play by the rules. During his time at Microsoft, the company was found guilty of violating antitrust laws and putting an oppressive thumb on the scale of competition in order to secure its status as a monopoly. Over the years, the company has paid hundreds of millions in settlements and narrowly avoided being broken up. Never mind Microsoft's murder and cover-up of Clippy the virtual assistant. Clippy knew too much. He started talking, didn't he? Didn't he? Or take Tom Steyer, another one percenter presidential candidate. He's a former hedge fund manager who says he cares deeply about the climate. The climate proposal that I put out about two weeks ago, it is the most aggressive climate proposal by far in this campaign. Yet part of why he's a billionaire is thanks to his firm bankrolling projects like coal mines in countries like China and Indonesia. Apparently, since getting an investment, those mines are now producing 70 million more tons of coal. And as late as 2014, Steyer was still a passive investor despite his claims of divestment. On top of that, Steyer wastes millions on nationwide impeachment ads when he lives in Nancy Pelosi's district. Just leave a severed horse head in her bed with a note that says impeach like a normal person. As for Mark Zuckerberg's self-made status, we've all seen the social network. We know he stole the idea for Facebook, just like he steals our data every day to rake in even more money. You didn't make you, Mark. My mom clicking on face cream ads did, and she regrets it. Zuckerberg calling himself self-made is like Frankenstein's monster saying, Actually, me self-made monster. <laughs> Economist and former Bernie Sanders advisor Stephanie Kelton busted the myth of self-made billionaires when she wrote, no one makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. You take it from your workers. You plunder it from the environment. You strip it using patent protections. And she's right. Calling someone a self-made billionaire is kind of like calling someone a self-made Everest climber. <sighs> I am totally self-made. There were no ropes, no harnesses, no three Sherpas who carried my stuff to the top. Well, two now. Good billionaires claim they want higher taxes. And yet, when a hint of a 70% tax rate was floated by AOC on people with income of $10 million or more, some got nervous. I, I think you can make the tax system uh, take a much higher portion from people with great wealth. 70%? Like, se 70%? Well, that... The applause meter has spoken, Bill. These great fortunes were not made through ordinary income. So you probably have to look to the capital gains rate mm -hmm. and the estate tax 
Bit of a deflection, but on one level, Gates is right. Capital gains are basically where a corporation can deduct nearly every expense they have. Salaries, investments, even debt. An estate tax law allows a parent to give a child up to $11 million tax-free. Add to that dividends, which are payments to shareholders that have a fixed tax no matter how large the payout. And billionaires are basically able to play the financial system by using their money to make even more. That's why, for example, Bernie Sanders' 2016 plan wanted to double taxes on capital gains and dividends and raise investment income tax to 10%. So how about it, Bill? I think that's a great debate. Mm -hmm. I think if you go so far as to say that there's a total upper limit, that that might have more negatives than positives. But, you know, I, I, I may have a distorted view well, of this. Probably a little distorted, Bill. Where the f is Clippy? Maybe we shouldn't ask the billionaires what their tax rate should be. That'd be like asking Panda Express to give itself its own health score. Four bamboo shoots and a raisin? Those aren't even numbers. But Gates's warning about a negative impact almost sounds like a threat. We know that the wealthy have offshore accounts and many accountants to find and exploit every tax loophole. Microsoft itself, which Gates still holds shares of, has avoided paying billions in taxes around the world by juggling profits between different countries. So if Gates is so woke on taxes, is he in favor of closing those corporate loopholes that he's used? Or will he find even more ways to evade? What about Warren Buffett, who was actually Bernie's answer to that very dumb question earlier? Buffett has said some decent things. When, when you have a billionaire who talks about raising taxes on the rich, I think he deserves some credit. Sure, Buffett has famously argued for more taxes on the wealthy, saying that he and his, quote, mega-rich friends can afford it, which is such a big humblebrag. Me, Elon, Oprah, and the rest of the Illuminati rich people are happy to pay more in taxes before we blast off for Elysium. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. But like Gates, when pressed, Buffett warns against doing too much to disrupt a system that has worked out really well for him. The inequality gap has widened and will continue to widen unless something is done about it. But I also believe that the most important single thing is to have more golden eggs to distribute around. Uh, so I don't want to do anything to the, to the goose that, that lays the golden eggs. And we've had the goose that lays more and more golden eggs over the years. Sure, and for every golden egg, there are 10,000 balls of duck Oh, look, mine's got a sunflower seed. What about charity? Good billionaires give to charity, right? And yet, charity is often what shields the ultra-wealthy from agreeing to any structural change. Listen to Michael Dell of Dell Computers balk at the idea of more taxes. There are growing calls to address these inequalities, particularly the wage inequality, mm -hmm with more taxes. Uh, Michael Dell, do you support this? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I haven't laughed this hard since the help slipped on a Fabergé egg and fell into the pool and drowned. <laughs> My wife and I set up a foundation, <laughs> and I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private foundation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government. Wow. 
Dell's basically saying that he can do more through private philanthropy than any democratically elected government could ever do through taxes. And he's not alone. Many billionaires boast about their generous donations, but the gesture is as generous as it is self-serving. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates started the Giving Pledge, a billionaire's promise to give away most of their wealth over their lifetime. Over 170 billionaires have signed it, including Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. But the pledge doesn't specify how or in what time frame to give away your wealth. So you could give it to public health programs like Bill and Melinda, or to a fancy new wing at your alma mater, or use it to buy portraits of yourself. Either way, press is good and no one really follows up. Plus, billionaires have gotten really good at using charity to dodge taxes. They donate to something called donor-advised funds, which allow them tax breaks and more control on how the money's invested. And they donate in stocks, not cash, for yet even more tax breaks. The highly publicized Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which was promoted as the Facebook founder giving away 99% of his wealth, was actually, as one reporter put it, an LLC, where he moved his wealth from one pocket to another. But forget tax incentives. Donations help the wealthy maintain power. Think about it. You not only get to put your name on hospitals, schools, museums, and fancy foundations of your choosing, but you potentially also have influence over what those institutions do. Also, if you think about it, celebrating billionaires who plaster their names all over buildings is kind of how we got into this mess to begin with. According to one author critical of philanthropic giving, donating can actually just reinforce a broken economic system. A lot of the elite helpfulness in our time is part of how we maintain the hoarding. We do giving in ways that protect the opportunity to keep taking. And we seek to change the world in ways carefully chosen to not change our world. Charitable donations from benevolent billionaires often end up being stopgap measures or pet projects for issues that need real solutions. Part of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative was handing out grants to the tune of $3 million to aid the housing crisis in Silicon Valley, a crisis Facebook absolutely exacerbated. It's a bit like an arsonist holding a bake sale for his local fire department. I just wanted to give back. Billionaire Richard Branson once pledged $3 billion to fight climate change that he never delivered on, and instead turned around and expanded his North American fleet of airliners. And then he took Obama kite surfing while we were in the death grips of the first month of the Trump administration. So fuck you again. Billionaires aren't inherently terrible people, and many have done good things. But at a time of massive inequality, shouldn't they give up a whole lot more? When Buffett, Bezos, and Gates own more wealth than the bottom half of the country, you have to ask yourself, how moral is it to have that much at all? Even if you had Romneys of children and built yourself multiple theme parks, you could still end world hunger by giving it all up and living in a condo. Maybe it's time to stop lauding the goodwill of billionaires and start seeing them as the reason we've got all this duck to clean up. Thanks again for watching Newsbroke. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Franny Fio. Follow AJ Plus on
feel like every little girl dreams of being something when she grows up. Some little girls dream about being lawyers, some dream about being mommies, and I dreamt about being a singer.
God shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. It is we who plow the prairie, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. They have taken untold millions that they never toil to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. You know, I'm looking at pictures from our trip. That was so great. They offer me, the office offer me the shop. Said I better take everything they got. Opportunities are ones that never knock. Career opportunities are ones that never knock. 
A little break, we'll be right back. Okay, we're back now. A little bit of Benny Goodman with uh, Lionel Hampton. So we had a dynamite set before we left. M-A-L-C-K, Milk, with her song, I Can't Keep Quiet, featuring a video of the Women's Parade in 2016, where the women had on their pink hats 
I can't keep quiet any longer and followed that up with something a little darker called Gatekeeper by Jesse Reves. I am the gatekeeper, the guys will tell you. All you got to do is spread your legs and you could be famous. And then Pete Seeger with a traditional union song, Solidarity Forever, another song written by Ralph Chaplin, and Career Opportunities by The Clash. What kind of choices do kids have these days, working class kids? Career Opportunities. Well, let's talk a little then about Labor Day. Okay, where did it come from? I had prepared kind of a soft introduction for celebrating the group. Let's see if we can find that. But otherwise, let's talk about Jovita Idar, who promoted rights of Mexican-Americans and women on this show. The last few weeks, we've been augmenting the history of uh, the terrorism in the South and the Jim Crow laws and the lynchings of African-Americans because it's so much in the news We've also, but we've been highlighting the treatment of uh, Mexicans and Mexican Americans in the Southwest and how the two systems were so similar that a group like the Texas Rangers, which gets so much praise in pop culture, was really the local adjunct of the Ku Klux Klan and their purpose in life was to keep down Mexican-Americans, to terrorize Mexican-Americans into submission. And you had the same types of things. The, the signs that said, no dogs or Mexicans allowed, uh, white only. It was all over California and the Southwest. This is the story of Povita Idar, a teacher, writer, and activist who preserved Mexican culture in South Texas and encouraged women to pursue an education and push for equal rights. When the Texas Rangers showed up outside the office of the newspaper El Progreso in 1914 with the intent of shutting it down, Jovita Idar, a writer and editor, was waiting at the front door to block them from entering. She was not about to back down. The officers, who then by gained a reputation for their violence against Mexicans, were furious over an editorial that criticized President Woodrow Wilson's order to send military troops to the Texas-Mexico border in the Mexican Revolution. Yes, troops under the command of John J. Pershing 
including people like George Patton and other luminaries of the American military later on, Camp Eisenhower, invaded Mexico. The excuse was that a Mexican named Pancho Villa had raided a town in Texas. Uh, Villa himself claimed that he was owed money and he hadn't been paid, so he went and tried to collect it. Columbus, Mexico. Vidar argued that silencing the newspaper would violate its constitutional right to freedom of press under the First Amendment. Rangers eventually turned back next day when Vidar was gone they returned to ransack the office smashing and destroying the printing presses that would not stop Vidar from writing about her view of justice one that she had formulated from childhood born September 7th and we're celebrating her birthday in Laredo, Texas, in 1885, second of eight children, father as an activist, worked as an editor and publisher of a local Spanish newspaper, Cronica. Laws of the Jim Crow era in Texas and other southwestern states, often called Juan Crow Law. Signs saying no Negroes, no Mexicans or dogs allowed to common schools. Law enforcement officers frequently intimidated and abused Mexican-American residents. And the schools they were sent to were underfunded and often inadequate. Speaking Spanish in public was discouraged. Dad was able to get an education. She was relatively privileged, educated in Methodist schools, went on to become a teacher in Los Ojuelos, a town in southeast Texas. And she was appalled by school conditions, including run-down buildings and a dearth of books. She could have more impact by focusing on activism and writing. A decision taken by Dolores Huerta as well. Both women started out as teachers and decided to become organizers, and in Vidar's case, a journalist. She believed that the poor living on both sides of the border could be uplifted by education and empowerment. Ahead of her time. The Cronica reported extensively on the borderlands and the Mexican Revolution, with a particular focus on those Mexican Americans, known as Tejanos, who had been living in Texas before the modern border. About some labor history. We started with 
20 minutes, uh, September 7th will be Labor Day. And as we know, as you might know, Labor Day was never meant to be that. Labor Day is a worldwide workers' day. was originally set in May to commemorate the uh, Haymarket martyrs, the men who were arrested under ridiculous assumptions that two of them weren't even at the meeting. It was a meeting where a bomb was thrown and some police died. No one ever knew who threw the bomb. It was in Chicago's Haymarket Square. And um, Chicago 8, eight people were arrested. Some, some were pardoned by uh, Socialist Governor John Peter Altgeld. Some were executed. Chicago 8. That happened on May 6th. May Day was adopted all over the world. There was a worldwide campaign, including people like the Pope and George Bernard Shaw and um, luminaries from all over the world begging, begging for clemency for these people. They were, after all, they were demonstrating for the eight-hour day. At any rate, the U.S. government couldn't stand to have Labor Day the same day all over the world and in the United States as well. So the government named Labor Day, I believe, in 1931, sometime in September, first Monday in September, was Labor Day. The beginning of the school year, End of summer. So that's how that's how that happened. Here's labor history in two minutes. First Labor Day parade. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1882. That was the day that the first Labor Day celebration and parade took place in New York City. The New York Sun printed a vivid report of the parade of 10,000 marching workers. The paper described, quote, men wearing regalia, men with society aprons and men with flags, musical instruments, badges, and all the other paraphernalia of a procession. The article went on to say, quote, as far ahead as one could could see and as far down the side streets as forms and faces could be distinguished the windows and roofs and even the lamp posts and awning frames were occupied by persons anxious to get a good view of the first parade in new york of working men of all trades united in one organization all along the line cheers were sent up 
The reporter described the colorful banners carried by each trade union and noted that following the bricklayers came, quote, two decorated wagons containing brick arches. On each side of one of the wagons were the inscriptions, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for recreation. And get on to it, the union will never surrender. From New York, the idea of setting aside a holiday for workers spread. Oregon became the first state to officially recognize the holiday in 1897. Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York established a Labor Day that year as well. By 1894, 23 more states celebrated the workers' holiday. It was that year that President Grover Cleveland declared it a national holiday in response to the Pullman strike and boycott that began in Chicago. Labor Day is the day to honor the sacrifices made by labor fighting for safe and fair workplaces. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1991. That was the day that a fire killed 25 workers at the Imperial Food Products Plant in Hamlet, North Carolina. More than 50 workers were also injured. The plant made chicken products for fast food restaurants and grocery stores. According to an article in the New York Times, the plant was, quote, a warren of ramshackle buildings. The fire started with hydraulic fluid from a ruptured line spraying into gas flames that heated large oil-filled cooking vats. Ninety workers were inside when the fire began. Some were able to escape out the main entrance or a loading bay. But the emergency exits of the plant were locked from the outside. A worker said that this was on the order of the company owner, Emmett J. Rowe to stop workers from stealing chicken. A passerby, Sam Breeden, was interviewed by the Associated Press. He described the tragic scene saying, quote, they were screaming, let me out. They were beating on the door. The people could not force the door open. At the time of the fire, the company had not had a fire inspection in 11 years. An inspection after the fire found 54 willful violations. The company was fined more than $800,000. Although this was the highest fine in the history of North Carolina, it was far less than federal fines for similar workplace disasters. That's because North Carolina has a state-run occupational health and safety program. At the time of the fire, nearly half of the country had state-run safety inspections. And what of the company's owner, Emmett Rowe? He was convicted of 25 counts of involuntary manslaughter, serving just four years. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Day in labor. The year was 1949. That was the day known in New York as the Peekskill Riots. Internationally renowned African-American singer Paul Robeson was scheduled to give an open-air concert. He was known for his deep, moving voice, singing iconic songs like Shenandoah and the Ballad of Joe Hill. 
Robeson was active in the causes of civil and labor rights. In the Cold War hysteria after World War II, Robeson had been labeled a dangerous communist. The New York concert was originally planned to benefit the Civil Rights Congress. The group had been defending the Trenton Six, a group of six young black men sentenced to die in New Jersey for allegedly killing a white shopkeeper. The case was rife with legal abuses, but protests over the concert led to its cancellation. It was rescheduled and the tickets were distributed to trade unionists in New York City. On the day of the concert, 2,500 union members made a human wall around the field to protect against protesters. Protesters gathered, hurling anti-black and anti-Jewish racial epithets. Pete Seeger opened the concert, followed by Robeson. The real trouble came when the concert ended and people tried to leave. The protesters threw rocks at passing cars, while policemen stood by and watched. 145 people were injured. Other concerts were canceled. Paul Robeson would continue to be harassed by the FBI. He was denied a passport due to his stance against anti-black discrimination in the United States and against colonialism in Africa. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Labor History in Tune brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryintune.net. Okay, Labor History in Two. Uh, we had Jovita Idar, who celebrated her birthday. She'd be uh, 135 today if she was still alive. You got to keep her alive, and people like her. And then Labor History in Two, the first Labor Day parade, the Peekskill riots, as a uh, ugly side of white America comes out. People stirred up by anti-communist hysteria attacked people who were leaving this concert. And the cops watched. You ask what else is new, but aren't you sick of it? Aren't you tired of it? Aren't you tired of those people who, as Lawrence Ferlinghetti said, are keep themselves ignorant and think that their rights mean they have license to do whatever they want or in the case of masks not even not even wear masks I don't have to <laughs> well we'll see enough people are dying let's see what we got on now I wanted to read top 10 Labor Day songs. We've pretty well done that. Um, this is about a, a proposition on the state ballot overturning Austerity 101, California's Prop 15 will tax the rich by Fred Glass, former... Uh, communications director of the California Federation of Teachers. California's November ballot will feature a challenge to the notorious Prop 13, which in 1978 helped to inaugurate the decades-long neoliberal assault 
on labor. Prop 13 exploited a fear that older homeowners had on fixed incomes. They were afraid rising taxes would throw them out of their homes. Rolled back assessments to 1975 rates, set property taxes at 1% of value, and kept increases at 2% per year, no matter the inflation rate or the increase in the marketplace. But the biggest beneficiaries of Prop 13 were giant corporate-owned properties like Chevron and Disney. The consequent plunge in property tax revenues to local and state government forced enormous cuts to social programs and schools. And establish a new normal as poor services for poor people. Prop 15 is the long-awaited answer to this disaster. It's the product of a 10-year-old coalition of unions now known and community groups now known as schools and community first with a couple of progressive tax victories under its belt already. Prop 15's message will mean commercial property is assessed at current market value, not purchase price, for tax purposes. In a non-COVID year, that change will raise 10 to $12 billion for schools and local services. In a pandemic depression, it will mean a bulwark against soaring class sizes and public sector layoffs. Okay. Carefully crafted after years of opinion research funded by public sector unions, it exempts commercial property below $3 million. Keep that in mind now. This is a tax on properties that are valued over $3 million. It exempts all residential property, including rental units. It also eliminates attacks on business equipment that mostly affected small business. The CTA, California Teachers Association and Service Employees International Union, Okay, so be aware. Prop 15, a tax on properties worth over $3 million. Not going to come and get your property like some people uh, will try to make you fear. Okay, that's about it. Let's go on our labor beat now. See what we got. Um, this is the website Labor and Love Radio on Facebook. And every week we put stories up here, post stories that seem to talk about labor. When Nixon pushed postal workers, they pushed back. 
This was in 1970. What started out as a small worker sick out in a Bronx branch of the U.S. Postal Service eventually developed into a wildcat strike that caused Richard Nixon to call in the National Guard to deliver the mail and greatly improve the working conditions for hundreds of thousands of postal workers. The strike was supported by a climate of dissent that existed in the early 1970s, a climate that was the current political atmosphere. Mimics this and provides a teachable moment. Check it out. In the real news, a Baltimore-based news organization. The single most important pro-labor speech of the shutdown was not given by AOC. It was given by Sarah Nelson. Nelson invoked the memory of Martin Luther King Jr., who himself was willing to take risks on behalf of the labor movement. He did by coming to Memphis on behalf of striking garbage workers. Federal sector unions have their hands full caring for the 800,000 federal workers who are at the tip of the spear. Some would say the answer is for them to walk off the job. I say, what are you willing to do? Their destiny is tied up with our destiny, and they don't even have time to ask us for help. Don't wait for an invitation. Get engaged, join or plan a rally, get on a picket line, organize sit-ins at lawmakers' offices. Go back to the fierce urgency of now to talk with your locals and international unions about all workers joining together to end this shutdown with a general strike. Let's see. I want to look for something by Martin Luther King. She brought up Martin Luther King. And King has a little coda that she talks about. All labor has value. All labor has dignity. It is a guess not. Just a second. 
Okay, we're back. Old Lieber has Biggie. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Martin Luther King, of course, in his speech, before he was assassinated at a labor meeting supporting the rights of uh, Memphis sanitary workers to organize and form a union. King went, of course, went there and Here's the thing about labor unions. 
It's a tradition all across the country. Family and friends gather to watch the Labor Day Parade. This one is in the borough of South Plainfield, one of the largest festivities in the state. I lived here 45 years and haven't missed any of them. But ask yourself this question. What do you think of when you think of Labor Day? Right about now you may be thinking it's the last day of summer. Maybe you're thinking of the fashion rule you're no longer allowed to wear white clothing. Or maybe you have memories of the Jerry Lewis Muscular Dystrophy Association Telethon, which started in the 60s. When I think of Labor Day, I think of barbecues and everything, like parties, parades. So that's usually what I think about. And I think like it's an American holiday. But how did we get this American holiday? We spoke with Angelica Santomaro at the American Labor Museum to understand where it all started. Turns out it dates back to 1882. There was a movement to organize workers to celebrate the work that they do in this country. Two gentlemen, one by the name of Matthew McGuire, the other Peter McGuire, were both involved in organizing the very first Labor Day Parade. There is debate to this day who of the two is the exact one who had the idea. Matthew McGuire was an alderman in Patterson, New Jersey, and um, Peter McGuire was a carpenter. And there is uh, an ongoing dispute that it's Peter McGuire who started it, but of course, we here in Passaic County like to give credit to Matthew as well. But whether you're on team Matthew or Peter, what's important is that year in New York City, she says 10,000 people came together to march as thousands more gathered to cheer them on and to celebrate all they had done for the country. And by 1894, President Grover Cleveland passed a law declaring the first Monday in September to be the workers' holiday, Labor Day. A national holiday was declared. Okay, that's about it for today. This is Labor and Love Show. As usual, we're coming at you from Saturday, Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Play you songs about labor. And throw a little love in there, too. Also, times of great opportunity. Can you imagine the name of the Washington Redskins? One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table where you work on the menu and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you.
Take a break from the social isolation and come out to All Jokes, the daytime outdoor comedy show at All Good Pizza in Bayview on Saturday, August 22nd at 3 p.m., where Drea Myers hosts a super funny lineup of comedians. Grab some brick oven pizza and enjoy the show in an outdoor courtyard with plenty of room to be physically distanced. See you soon at All Good Pizza for this tremendous outdoor comedy show at 1605 Gerald Avenue in the Bayview. That's all jokes at Good Pizza with Drea Myers, Saturday, August 22nd at 3 p.m. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> my name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, re-
transgression and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. I am Italian. And we brought you fascismus with Mussolini. And before that, the Romans. So if you think you live in a fascist country, well, you do. Antitrump.com is the antivirus to the Trump virus. It started in 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better America. No one thought it would be this bad. He was a 70-year-old yammering Nimrod. How bad could it possibly be? We are now in a global pandemic without adequate leadership. Individual politics are not important. We need to rally behind curing the Trump virus. Go to antitrump.com. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Hey, you, poetry reader. This is Bjork's sister, Mjork. It's okay. We also have a soul and a weekly poetry reading on Mutiny Radio's AltaCast, zoomed every Wednesday at high noon from Glasgow, Scotland. One of our co-hosts from Choose Poetry, Choose Life, Andy Talbot, has a new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, which is available at analogsubmission.com now. Go buy it and don't let the poets lie to you. Once again, that's Andy Talbot's new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, available at AnalogSubmission.com. Welcome to Strictly Bad Vibes, your personal complaint department. Um, 
What what the hell are we talking about? Um, whiny people and their stupid complaints that we requested they send us. Why do we do this? Why why are we? <laughs> None of which matters in this equation because it is his choice to carry such horse shit on the fucking train. And he was yelling. He was like, "Move it, bitch! Move it, bitch!" And uh, and uh, I wasn't. I wasn't. I'm just not. I'm not moving it. You know. I've arrived. Why should I move? I don't like what work has been giving us at our free lunches. One one five three four zero one nine seven six, and it does not spell anything. One one five three four zero. One nine seven six. Go for it. Call in, guys. Are the end times upon us? Not yet, my friends. Please, this is an impassioned plea from Pam Benjamin, the director of Mutiny Radio. Let us live past October. You think it's a joke? COVID is decimating all of us, and especially us here at. Mutiny Radio, we have money left until October 1st. Don't let anyone sing, despite of their size. Please, please go donate to our GoFundMe. Go to mutinyradio.fm and click that GoFundMe button. Or just go to Venmo. Mutiny Radio, all one word. Just Mutiny Radio. Give us five bucks. Help us keep free speech and radical self-expression real and alive here in San Francisco and all over the world. Please donate to our Mutiny Radio GoFundMe and keep us alive in 2020 and beyond. Don't let our world end. L-S-D, FAP, acid and fapping, fapping and acid, acid and fapping, fapping and acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you, that song is called Acid and Fapping. The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. 